I think of the people that are successful that I know, Nishant, that are in my mind. They're probably yes. names you and I don't know. They are. They don't have the blue check mark on Twitter or Instagram. They don't have a social media following or influencer. The people that I know that are successful are individuals that have come to me and they were brave enough to say, "Okay, something's going on in my brain. I don't know if this is ADHD, anxiety, something that's going on." And they have the courage to do something about their brain and mental health, and they go back in with joy and a sense of purpose to their job. They're the everyday teacher. Principal, executive—the people whose names you and I will never know—they're just another name on LinkedIn, or you know, someone collecting a paycheck. But they go, and then they have a chance to impact the team they lead and make everyone that works around them feel happier and healthier as well, or the students in their classroom, or their patients. So, those are the people that I see that are successful. They took a pause and realized, "Ooh, I need to work on my brain and mental health." And I'm going to do this so that I can make the people I work with feel better. Those are the successful people that I feel honored to serve every day, Nishan. Hello, my friends. This is Nishant, and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Garg Show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves, and being a source of healing. My job on the show is to invite the world-class experts to deconstruct the practices, routines, and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. I have a request for you this time. If you have been listening to this podcast for some time, and if you find it useful and helpful, please help me in spreading the word about the show by telling one person among your friends and family, and that would mean the world to me. And today's guest is Dr. Romi Mushtaq. Dr. Romi is a board-certified physician, award-winning wellness speaker, and the founder of BrainShift at Work. She brings together over 20 years of authority in neurology, integrative medicine, and mindfulness to not just deliver programs but create cultural change. She is on a mission to transform mental health in the workplace and currently works with Fortune 500 companies, professional athletes, and global associations. Dr. Romi is also the chief wellness officer for Evolution Hospitality, where she scaled a mindfulness and wellness program to over seven thousand employees. Her expertise is featured in the national media such as NPR, NBC, TED Talks, and Forbes. You will love this episode. In this conversation, we explore different paradigms for wellness, optimizing brain health, exploring root causes of depression and anxiety, different causes of mood changes, improving sleep. managing stress connection with divine and much much more and one more thing please if you have a busy brain take this 4 minute free test from dr romi to see if brain drain is robbing you of your sanity and sleep you will find the link in the show notes at nishantgarg.me/romi r o m i e and now please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with dr romi Romi, welcome to the show. Oh, Nishant, it, we have been trying to get this scheduled for like over six months, and I guess the universe said today was the day to sit down and finally meet and chat. So, thank you. I feel like we're, <laughs> we're LinkedIn besties, is what I feel like. Today is the best day to have this podcast recording with you. So I thought if we could start with something very unusual, I want to start with by asking you your addiction to chocolate. How did you <laughs> find yourself addicted to chocolate? I think that was not an addiction early on. It was a training mechanism. I I am the oldest of three children. I have two younger brothers, and I have always. I think looking back now as an adult, I would say intellectually curious and and talkative, but you can imagine for my poor mother with three children, that was a lot to handle. And so in order to keep me quiet and my appetite satiated because there was no internet and Google back in those days, she would go and tell me to read something in the encyclopedia and go learn something new. And if I was a good girl, my mom or my aunties and I would proudly come and tell them what I had read. and give them an oral report i would get fed a piece of chocolate as a reward and i think that 
it was the start of wiring my brain of chocolate being a good reward. <laughs> what is your favorite chocolate? Oh my gosh. You know, I'm a little picky. I really prefer any dark chocolate that is made in Europe. And the reason is, is I think the quality of the milk is different there. Here in the US, we use a lot of high fructose corn syrup and unnatural ingredients. So something about the quality of the raw sugar and dark chocolate in Europe, and it doesn't need to be fancy. I remember growing up eating the Cadbury chocolates from the UK. But of course, if it's one of those bougie, expensive boxes of chocolate from a chocolatier in France, I'll smile and say thank you any day. How about you? Do you have a favorite chocolate? I'm not a chocolate freak. I've <laughs> never been in love with chocolates. I can enjoy eating chocolates here yeah. and there. But yeah. I hardly remember spending money on spending my money on eating chocolates. Oh, okay. <laughs> So how often do your chocolates? Now I, I use, I think it's still like my childhood. I use it as a treat and I really try to be mindful. And when I'm stressed out and, and, you know, can be prone to stress eating, like so many of us are, I try not to use chocolate for medicine and that way I use it as, as a treat and a gift. And so I don't know. I mean, whenever there's good dark chocolate, which you're reminding me, Nishanthi, had good, I had found sourced some Cadbury chocolate from the UK and I thought it would last me a month and it finished in a week. So my home is devoid of chocolate right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when somebody asks you, Romy, what do you do for living, for work, for fun? How do you usually respond to that question? I say I have the honor to be of service to humanity and that we have a sick care system here in the United States and I bring 20 years of my authority in neurology, integrative medicine, and mindfulness to create wellness paradigms, specifically for brain and mental health in the workplace, that if you, know, you can keep an employee's brain and mental health well, you're going to not only have you know, a happy team and a successful business, but most of all, you're helping an individual stay well and be the best version of themselves. And not get stuck in the sick care system that is overridden here in the United States. So I would say that's my mission. Overall, yes, I am a physician and the founder of the Brain Shift Institute, and we help individuals and organizations with brain, mental, and mindfulness programs. What is the difference between brain health and mental health. There isn't, but in the United States medical system, they're differentiated, right? So when we think of neurology, which is my background in training, that's the structure and the function of the brain. Your mental health typically is around your mood. But as neuroscience has advanced in the last 20 to 30 years, we realize that even a mood disorder or a when your mood is just not well, whether it's anything from feeling anxious to having a full-on anxiety disorder, let's say, or depression, that there is a structural and chemical pro uh, problem with the brain. And anytime I had neurology patients with migraine or epilepsy, there were was associated mental health symptoms with it. So I put it all on one continuum. And specifically, the last three years, I've been researching, and we'll get into this in a little bit, a phenomenon known as the busy brain, and we'll get to that. But yeah, so your brain and your mental health is how you your brain functions, your memory, and your mood. I want to talk about mood elevators because I struggle with my mood elevations at times. Could you recommend us some tips or practices to maintain our mood elevations or at least to a stable point where we don't feel very depressed or we don't feel very high on mm -hmm. and off. Okay. I, you know, Nishant, that's a great question. And I hear two questions in that. And I'm going to break it down. Is one, what does it mean to have an elevated mood? Or two, what does it mean to treat depression? I think in the world, there was BC before COVID, there was this false notion that successful people were positive and happy and extroverts. And somehow, if you weren't always bubbly and an extrovert, you needed to elevate your mood. And that's not true at all. If mindfulness and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy has taught me one thing is it's a place of equanimity, that place of neutral, that it is normal for any human to have highs and lows throughout the day. 
and being able to recognize your mood and come back to a place of that neutral stillness is a goal always, right? So too often, if someone is not exhibiting that high and happiness and bubbliness and euphoria or excitement, they're labeled as a downer. And that's not true. They Their place of equanimity just may be different than yours and mine, Nishant, right? So first of all, I, I want to say that, right? So if you're someone that doesn't experience those highs, that's normal. You know, there there's, you know, this is not the time or the conversation, nor am I the expert to talk about Myers-Briggs, but I go back to, you know, Myers-Briggs makes it simple. So now the second thing is, well, what, it, how do I know if I'm depressed and, and have a depression? And then you said peaks of, of mood, which can be bipolar. So that's two different things. So I'm just going to tackle depression. I, you know, we have a mental health crisis right now all over the world of people listening between the stress and burden of COVID-19 disease. And most of us know or have a loved one who lost their life or was suffering from COVID, the economic crisis that's happening, you know, depression and anxiety are on the rise globally when you look at the research. And my job in neurology and integrative medicine is to get to the root cause of your depression. So the idea that you need just a prescription medication or a supplement is a false idea. I think when people hear I do integrative medicine, they think, oh, Romy, could you give me three tips? What are some supplements I could take to feel better? And it doesn't work that way. I want to get to the root cause of why your mood is down. Does that make sense? Or do you know a little bit about root cause medicine? It does. Could you elaborate more on the root causes of depression and anxiety? Because in traditional medicine, everybody's trying to fix the surface level problem, but there is a cause, there is a source. Every stress has a source. And uh, to my little understanding that integrative medicine is going at the root cause, root cause yeah. the root level of yeah. that. Could you elaborate more on that? So integrative and functional medicine, we look at each person as a whole individual and we take into account everything that may be going on in your life, in your mind or your body or spirit. And so like the traditional medical models were it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, what your age is, what's going on in your life, you're going to get an antidepressant pill or an anxiety pill. And I'm not saying those are bad, Nishant. I've seen many people's lives saved from taking those medicines. But there's something deeper going on. What is the biochemical foundation of what's going on and what's at the root cause? So here are some quick and easy examples. And then I'm going to get deeper if you want to. It is very normal if someone is, let's say, ending a relationship with a romantic partner, going through a divorce to feel depressed. You know, for that person, cognitive behavioral therapy to talk about processing the end of a relationship, that's their root cause of a mood. They don't necessarily need a supplement or medication, maybe temporarily something to help them sleep or something like that, right? Then there's other people, when we get to the root cause, we see, oh, there's hormonal imbalances in a man, a testosterone level may be low. In a man or a woman, there may be a thyroid abnormality that could be contributing to depression and anxiety. So that's what it means to get to the root cause. Now, when we look at depression and anxiety, they have different root causes. So one thing I think if anybody that's listening to to this podcast, and I'm going to ask you for redirection because we could go on for an hour and I don't think this is <laughs> either one of us. Depression and anxiety are two separate diseases. They get thrown into one sentence by the lay public and traditional doctors who've not trained in neurology or psychiatry. People throw them together and they're two very, very different diseases in the traditional medical world, as well as in the integrative medicine, functional medicine world. They can both coexist together in some people, but most of their two different diseases. So which way would you like me to go? Anywhere you feel like to go. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go with, you initially asked about mood elevation. So I'm going to go with depression. Depression clinically means for the last 14 days, people are seeing a disturbance in their life, the disturbance in their sleep, in their mood is not, is depressed. 
they no longer enjoy things that would normally bring them happiness and they are having difficulty functioning, right? So now look, if Nishant, you and I were to get some bad news, like I, I will say this, uh, as you and I are recording this podcast, there's a humanitarian crisis happening in India right now with COVID-19. When I watch that news and I think about that, I feel sad. And that will down my mood. It doesn't mean that I have a medical problem. It means I have empathy. I may have more empathy than others and you too, so that we may feel the suffering a little deeper than others. And I honor that mindfulness has taught me that, right? Now, what happens is if I keep watching the news of what's going on around the world with COVID-19, India is not alone. Many countries are suffering, including here in the United States where you and I both live. And now I can't function and I can't focus on my work and it's disturbed my eating and sleeping. Well, then for a couple of weeks, now I have depression. So here are a few things that I look for as an integrative medicine doctor and neurologist is, do you have symptoms of a leaky gut? You know, and many things can lead to that leaky gut, stress, eating processed foods, and that causes inflammation in the gut, which we know can contribute to depression. Is there a thyroid abnormality? Is there something affecting your spirit? Like I said, somebody that has suffered a loss, they're grieving, losing a loved one in the pandemic or a job loss or a divorce, you know? So I get to the root cause and think, okay, what needs to be fixed in the mind, body, or spirit, or all three? If somebody listening to this podcast wants to consult an integrative medicine doctor, what would be the best way to consult yeah. a doctor who is not just trained in traditional medicine, yeah. they have holistic body approach? I, you know, I think I would say this is, <laughs> thank you for Dr. Google for that. Google integrative and functional medicine in your city. But the beautiful thing now is with the pandemic, the telemedicine health laws have relaxed. So we can see patients across borders. Just please don't reach out to me. I am not seeing one-on-one patients. You and I are going to talk about my busy brain program. <laughs> I, I, I serve as a chief wellness officer right now for a large organization of over 7,000 employees and work with several other corporations. So I'm not seeing one-on-one clients, but Google that. My, my preference and bias is please talk to a MD or a DO that has this background that can see things from the viewpoint of traditional and integrative functional medicine. I think there are a lot of people who are out there and they market themselves well on Instagram and they have maybe read a doctor's website like mine or another, you know, uh, well-known colleague in integrative and functional medicine and they coach people on that. And I think, you know, all of our practices, when I was in integrative medicine, it's important to have a coach, but you really do need an additional doctor that can know how to order labs and assess your labs and get to your root cause. There are so many directions, millions of directions I can go with. And I want to take a pause and go back in 1960s. Your dad moved to the States in 1960s. You were born into an Asian family in the Mm -hmm. small Midwestern town of Illinois. Mm -hmm. So what was your experience like in school or in college as an immigrant kid? You know, yeah, I'm a proud daughter of immigrants and I honor my mother and father for all that they sacrificed of being here to make life better for their family. I want to also say, because immigration is a hot button topic, that most people don't know the history that in the 1960s, there was a crisis and shortage of doctors and engineers and scientists in the United States and the universities and hospitals were recruiting the best doctors and engineers from all over Asia, the Middle East and Africa. And that along with the civil rights movement and the law that was passed, Part of that legislation was now non-white immigrants would be allowed into the country because prior to that, if you were a non-white immigrant coming from the Middle East, anywhere in Asia or Africa, you were not allowed in the United States. So my dad came with that first wave of immigrants right as the civil rights movement was happening. And so as someone and he didn't know English, I really honor my father of what he faced, right, in a highly divided United States. And this is in the late 1960s. And you Fast forward to 2021 when you and I are recording this and in some ways he and I talk, things have really changed and in some ways that anchored systemic racism for non-white individuals in the United States has gotten, it has not changed, right? So 
I really honor my parents for that. They instilled a very hard work ethic and in all of us children. So I grew up in a, a small Midwestern town and I know you're in uh, Texas and Shant and originally yes. from India, but I, one thing about the Midwest is, you know, we tell it like it is, you know, but we all have really good hearts and we love our neighbors. So I think the beauty of growing up in our small town was our other family friends were other doctors in the community. So I grew up with a very diverse group of family friends and their children. So all religions and ethnicities. So, you know, my best childhood friends were black and Jewish and Hindu and Christian and Catholic and Muslim. We celebrated every holiday and it taught me about as a community, when you're diverse, you're stronger and happier. And I think that has really influenced who I am as an adult and my leadership style of championing always for diversity, equity, and inclusion. But if you ask me what me personally, you know, I grew up in a public school system in a small town. And I'll be honest with you, Nishant, back then, they didn't really think girls, it was a priority for girls, even in the United States to have academic excellence, let alone be tracked into a career of science, technology, engineering, math and medicine. But like so many immigrants, like my dad who came here, they knew STEM pathways were a key to stability when you're a minority. And I remember growing up with this one success mantra for my mom and dad, we have one daughter and you will become a doctor. <laughs> and let me tell you, I had like, I had ambitions. I, I remember, you know, this is what I remember early on. This is where I knew that I was intuitive and, and I didn't know what that meant as a child. I remember as a very young girl in elementary school watching Barbara Walters and Connie Chung and then after that Oprah Winfrey on TV and saying, I can do that. And my mom would be like, are you crazy? They are never going to put a brown girl on TV. You study in math and science. You need to grow up and become a doctor, right? But something intuitively knew that I would be on camera for something and have a message. I, I didn't know what that meant. I just thought, I'm going to be a journalist and be on TV. You know, I want Oprah to mentor me. And by the way, Oprah, if you ever hear this episode, I still want you to mentor me. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it was like. And so, you know, at a time where your teachers would be like, no, oh, honey, that's so cute. You want to be a doctor. Why don't you take another home economics class? And I'm thinking, what? Please, Nishant, I don't want to learn to make pancakes from scratch. I want to go learn chemistry in the periodic table of elements. So like, I think I've always just fought the norm of what's expected of me, whether it's our traditional Asian culture or whether it's the traditional Midwestern culture for girls growing up in the 70s. And so, yeah, that was what my experience was like. But I will tell you, I love my small hometown of Danville, Illinois. My childhood elementary, middle school and high school friends are still my friends. When I have a success in business and they see it on social media, they're the first people to reach out and say, we always knew you were going to do this when we were kids. So I love that. Do you remember any memorable instance or conversation from your teenage years with anybody, with your family members or with any friend of yours? I, I mean, I, from my teenage years, that's interesting. I, you know, I would, I would think of my best childhood friend, Yannette. She is black and her parents raised her with conservative Christian values. And I was raised with conservative Muslim values. And our parents kept us together. Like I could go visit Yannette at her home or she could visit me at my home because her parents wanted her to leave Danville and become something. And, you know, she went on to go to Johns Hopkins University and graduate magna cum laude in chemical engineering, right? And I think I just remember her and I having these conversations of what our lives would look like as financially independent career women and and imagining that together. I think that's what her and I would talk about, like having our own homes and traveling the world and, you know, having our own careers. And it, I do remember that. And it sounds so basic, but really growing up now, we were, this is the 1980s and the early 1990s, you know, girls didn't have ambition to leave. And, you know, nowhere in our ambition, Nishant, are you hearing that we were going to get married, right? Our ambitions <laughs> were to be career women and see the world. And we did that. And she's now happily married and has a beautiful son, Alex. And I'm, I'm you know, he's my godson, my nephew. And I, I did get married. I'm divorced now. So, but 
you know, it, it is. I think that's what I remember. It just felt like her and I were in our own world, wondering what life outside of our small town was going to be like. Yes. And fast forward, why did you want to become a doctor? You know, I think it it's not why I wanted to become a doctor, Nishant. It was what I was trained to do as a child. Study your math and science. Now, you know, my parents may or may not have realized it. They were English is my second language. So they're having me read the encyclopedia one. It gave me a better command of the language, but it taught me to read large volumes of information and process it. So if you look at that, I my entire life has been dedicated to becoming a physician. And then when I went to medical school, I was drawn to neuroscience and neurology. And, you know, back then, less than 1% of students going to medical school went into neurology or psychiatry. It, it wasn't as trendy as it is now. Now neuroscience is a sexy undergrad, you know, <laughs> we are back then. I was just weird. And I ended up entering neurology at a time where less than 5% of brain doctors in the United States were women. And I was doing this as a woman of color. So it was very interesting, but it, it just stuck. And I think that, and many physicians will tell you, even though, you know, people don't understand, you really do go into medical school with a healing heart and that you want to make a difference. Nobody prepares you for what the toxic healthcare system is like in the United States now, I think. So you, you're in this bubble, all of medical school, and even for me in residency and fellowship of dedicating your time and your mind to your craft and the pursuit of knowledge to help others. And then boom, you're hit with the business of the healthcare system. <laughs> <laughs> and in the preparation of this conversation, I read that after reaching the pinnacle of success while working 8,200 hours per week mm. and achieving your career milestones, you developed a rare, nearly health disorder. Could you speak to that? Yeah, Nishant, I will say this, looking back, I was so focused on my external goals and titles, Nishant, right? And so from the outside looking in, I was this polished, dressed in designer high heel shoes with a white lab coat, a professor doing research, teaching medical students, you know, I had successfully married and even more successfully divorced. I was traveling, I had a beautiful condo looking overlooking Lake Michigan in a prestigious location. Like, from the outside, I had checked every box you could have imagined. But on the inside, I think the trauma of being a minority woman in a healthcare system in STEM, especially back in those days and what you had to deal with and the long sleepless nights, I was burning and churning, you know, burning, churning all day, burning the midnight oil, sleep deprived because I would end up getting called back to the emergency room often. And I knew I was stressed, Nishan. I didn't even know that the symptoms I had were difficulty focusing and anxiety. It just felt like my brain cells were on fire. And uh, what now I call the busy brain, because I see it in so many executives and other high achieving success driven professionals like myself. But back then, I just thought I was failing. And that guilt and shame sent me into a spiral. So here I am, chronically sleep deprived in a highly stressful job. We were one of the earliest hospitals in the United States to go on this particular EHR system known as EPIC, which was very challenging when you're running a busy practice and doing research and all teaching medical students. I mean, I, I just remember everything coming down upon me and I started to develop chest pain and I was responsible. I'm like, what is this? I'm in my young 30s. This shouldn't be happening at the time. And I went to the doctor and they're like, oh, honey, you're like every other junior faculty professor. You're stressed out. <laughs> Your division just went on electronic health records. You need to give up the chocolate and the alcohol and you, you know, you need, we need to run some tests and you need to take these antibiotics and antacids. And I listened and it didn't get better. So I naturally stopped the antacids and, and antibiotics and I went back to the chocolate, right? I mean, it was my coping mechanism at that time. And that and buying expensive shoes, <laughs> unfortunately, it, the chest pain got worse and it got to this point in a shot, like, I was waking up in the middle of the night and I couldn't breathe. And I, I don't take my breath for granted ever again. And anybody listening, if you've ever lost your ability to breathe, you know how sacred that is. Otherwise, it's something we take for granted. I was literally choking on my own vomit and saliva and I would end up aspirating and getting pneumonia. And like we knew it wasn't normal and it took a few years, but I got diagnosed with achalasia, which is a 
rare medical disorder, but by that time I had precancerous lesions and ended up in life-saving surgery. So this is now in 2010. And that was when YouTube really wasn't online and, you know, there weren't yoga and meditation studios on every street corner, let alone an app on a phone. None of that was there. And I remember going back after surgery to that small town in Illinois and my mom and my elders just caring for me. And they were saying, what happened to that Romy we knew as a child? <laughs> we no longer see her. It's like the lights are on and nobody's home. And you know, I was so burnt out that not only was it physical symptoms from stress, but it was like my spirit was broken. And that was when I first found my path on a cassette tape from an elder to meditation. And that led me on a global journey to work with my... What's, what is the name of that elderly person? <laughs> oh, gosh, there were so many, but I think it was Fridanti and Zenith Auntie and Deepa Auntie. There were so many, yeah, that would just sit with me. And, and they would all tell me about their own journeys as women. So I got to hear a lot of their stories. And with all of them, different forms of meditation came up. They would talk about meditation. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Rumi, how many hours were you sleeping at that time? You mean when I was working as a neurologist? Yes. Not a lot, because even if I would, I would get home from work and I was working late on my electronic health records or, you know, I really had no personal life and I would get a few hours of sleep and be woken up by my pager that either there was a problem with a patient in the middle of the night that I would need to get up or I would actually need to get up and get dressed and go back to the emergency room. So I would say in four years of residency, two years of fellowship, four or five years in academic medicine, and then in community medicine, like those whatever, however many years, almost 13, 14 years of all that, I don't know that a single week ever went by where I slept the whole night without getting woken up. Mm. And what is your sleep routine now? Oh my gosh, I protect it like you would a newborn child. My entire schedule is based on sleep. And in our in our brain shift protocol, or for people with busy brain, we say sleep is the new status symbol among successful professionals. So my sleep routine now is based on our brain shift protocol where I do my best. I am a scaling entrepreneur right now of a health and wellness company, but I really try 60 minutes, but if not, absolutely 30 minutes before bedtime practicing digital detox. I have, you know, my routine where I walk my dog at night. And, and so it allows me to decompress and get away from everything. And then my mindfulness exercise that I do just for self-reflection and self-awareness at night to decompress and I sleep. I also use the supplements that we talk about in the brain shift protocol. And, you know, we're in the middle of a holy month. So it's a little different right now that I wake up for fasting. But aside from that, Nishant, I I then, you know, try to sleep seven to eight hours and wake up with the sun. And now, you know, I would say, thank goodness for my dog. I, you know, if I don't wake up, he wakes up. So both of us are on the same circadian rhythm. And so we just naturally wake up with the sun rising. Yeah. What, what time do you go to bed usually? For me, I typically am in bed by 10 to 1030 at night and I wake up at 530 to 6am the next morning. You mentioned our supplements. Could you suggest some supplements to improve our sleep? Yeah, I think, you know, people can go to my website, Nishant, and take the busy brain test because there's not one supplement and it's for free. There's not one supplement that works for everybody. It really depends if your circadian rhythm is disturbed, your sleep-wake cycle. It depends if you have difficulty falling asleep and your thoughts are racing at night, busy brain. Or are you waking up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep? Or are you sleeping your eight to 10 hours and you wake up feeling tired, right? Those are all very different things. So I, I try to be mindful and not say with a blanket statement for everybody that's listening so that they're going to go click on Amazon and buy what we say. But if I had to give one, I would definitely talk about the importance of magnesium as a mineral. Magnesium is crucial for brain health, heart health, immunity, your gut health. You know, we have 50 hormones that govern our entire brain and body and every function. And magnesium is a critical mineral for that, Nishan, for all of those hormones to produce and function. And specifically for the brain, magnesium glycinate or magnesium theonate are, you know, cross the blood brain barrier and are important and they don't 
upset your stomach. You know, some of the cheaper magnesiums that are out on the market for constipation really don't have the benefit for your brain and your sleep. So that would just be one that I would recommend. But really, as always, I'm a licensed and board certified doctor. So I have to say, do not take this as medical advice. Please talk to your healthcare provider, you know, for sure. <laughs> I will definitely go and take this test. And uh, at what point, really, you got introduced into mindfulness? So mindfulness and the meditation, I told you, came back when I was sick. It was 2010, and I'm home, and the meditations, I noticed, started to help my postoperative chest pain. And I was slowly lifting out of that funk I was in that people call burnout now. And I was curious. So I went to the public library in our town looking for books on mindfulness and meditation. And it was clear nobody had ever checked these books out before. And then I went to Barnes and Nobles. Do you remember the days of libraries and bookstores? I miss those, Nishant, by the way. <laughs> I do. I think our society is suffering because we don't use libraries enough or have bookstores. I think we were much better as a society when we, we were focused on books, by the way. But anyway, I regress. And I remember reading these books on meditation and mindfulness and spirituality. And as a really analytical brain doctor, they seemed a little out of reach. I could understand it and I could read these books. And I was like, this is lovely, but I'm like, I can intellectualize it. I don't know how to put it into action. And that sent me on a journey around the world to work with teachers in Cambodia and Thailand and South Asia and South America. And Somewhere along the way, I realized, oh, ding, 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 ding. The universe did not do this to you, Roby, for your well-being. They did it because you are destined for a mission that is bigger than yourself. And you're doing this and learning all this so you can be of service and help other people. And I think that's what happened. And then I went back in 2013 to get board certified in integrative medicine to learn the science of wellness. And I did the mindfulness-based stress reduction training and the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy training so that I could help others. And here we are today, you fast forward today, and I, I get to put it into action. That's so exciting. What were some of those books you picked up from the library? Early on? Oh my gosh, I remember reading The Art of Happiness from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. I remember that being one of the first ones. And I remember thinking, why didn't I learn this when I was a child? And then I remember judging myself thinking, well, I'm an adult and I'm burned out and I've just gone through life-saving surgery. Maybe it's too late for me to find happiness in life. Isn't that sad? But I say that because I feel like someone needs to hear that listening to this podcast. And I remember reading a lot of Sharon Salzberg's books and then Dr. John Kabat-Zinn and his training on mindfulness-based stress reduction. And um, definitely from my, the medical side, if there's any medical folks listening, and I, I think they're still available very early on. I did the certifications and training at Harvard Medical Schools, the Herbert Benson Institute with Dr. Herbert Benson. And, you know, he's, he's one of the thought leaders and researchers here in the United States on, on um, the health benefits of meditation. So, yeah, I think that was a, a lot of it of my books. Yeah. The book Art of Happiness is a fantastic book. I've read this book many, many times. Mm -hmm. What kind of books do you usually gift or recommend to people? Oh, that's a really good question. I think I listen to what they're going through because I tend to talk to two different kind of people right now who are asking me for book recommendations. Some are my executives from the large organizations where I go in to consult for wellness and sometimes do executive one-on-one -on -one coaching. And I know for them, they just need a better way to organize their brain and their days. One of my favorite is Essentialism by McEwen. I give that book often of getting to just that one thing. So I, I think, and I try to read that book once a year and we're recording this and I realize we're into quarter two and I haven't reread that book yet. So this is, thank you, Nishant, for that reminder. I need to read it. <laughs> I've read that book. Mm -hmm. And for entrepreneurs, I think I, you know, have a lot of entrepreneurial books that I recommend to people that they read that I wish I had before you go out and you fall into the trap of, oh, I need a fancy website and a social media following. No, you need to get your branding and your messaging and your mission down. So I, I typically give people books like that, like, you know, Simon Sinek's couple of books of Know Your Why and Plan Your Why. And I definitely love Pop by Sam Horn. So those would be the books I recommend to entrepreneurs. But overall, can I tell you the first book I read on January 1st every year? Please. The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Have you read that? I have read a few pages, but it did not click to me. Okay, so this is a reminder for you to go back 
I'm going to hold that intention for you. And I'm going to check in with you. Thank you. Uh, it, aside from the Bible, I my understanding is The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho is the most sold book all over the world. And it translated in multiple languages or one of many. And I got it when I was going through a divorce. I remember Tammy, I, I've lost touch with Tammy, gave it to me because she saw I was really suffering. I had uh, been in a very, what we would call traditional marriage, and it didn't work for me. I wanted to be a career woman traveling the world, remember? And I, I did the unthinkable in our culture, which was get a divorce and not be a housewife and say, no, I want a career. And I am a woman on a mission and I'm going to make change. And, you know, for South Asian women in America of my generation, that's not common, Nishant. And so I remember her giving me The Alchemist and it's a powerful parable of a shepherd who is lost on his way in life and on a journey. And along the way, a cast of characters come that all have wisdom. And I read that book every year. It's been 15, 16 years. I read the exact same one. And I, there's always a message in there to remind me. I think first it's a gut check, Nishant, that am I truly on my life's path and my soul's journey and my mission? And am I being of service? And I think I, I get a little reminder from that book every time I read it. So that is the one where that's the book I gift most often when somebody is graduating from high school or college or someone is going through a hard time in their life. When you reread that book, and you get the reminder. So what ignites you? What is that ignition in your body, in your mind, in your soul after reading that book? What do you feel? There's this, oh, that's such a deep question and beautiful. I know that I'm connected to divine and what I call grace, gathering my grace. When it feels like my spirit and my mind and my body are all connected. And I will say working in a pandemic for all the hours we sit in front of our screens right now I, is the opposite. It's the disconnected. That's the busy brain, Nishant. You know, the difficulty focusing, the multiple modalities of communication distracting you, uh, difficulty falling asleep at night. You need mood elevators or, you know, to enhance your performance all day, whether it's caffeine or Ritalin and alcohol or a sleeping pill to calm down at night. That's the opposite. When I know I'm in a state of flow, in a state of grace, I call it gathering my grace, and in connection with divine, there is this calm that I feel. I almost feel like my consciousness has ri risen above all the daily drama, trauma, and stress that can distract us. <laughs> drama, trauma, distress. Stress. Yes, yes. It's a good rhyme. Yeah, drama, trauma, and stress that distracts us. That's a, a tweetable moment right here on the podcast. <laughs> when you connect with your divine, do you have any practice? for that connection? I do. I do. So I get up and pray every morning. And after that, I meditate and I have a mantra meditation. It helps me. I'm a busy brain. You know, I am my own research that I've been working on these three, all these three years. And same with all the type A success driven, unapologetic professionals that I tend to work with. And so when you have a busy brain, repetition for me and holding the mala beads helps me and reciting a mantra. So I sit and I meditate in the morning and I do a circle or two sometimes breathing with and reciting mantra. And then I sit in stillness and meditate. And I end my meditation practice asking, how am I going to be of service today? And then at night, as I'm doing a body scan, laying in bed, I ask myself, how was I of service today? Even if I just opened the door for an elderly person in a building, you know, how was I of service today? And how could I have done better today? What could I have done better today? And then who am I thankful for today? Not what, who am I thankful for today? And did I tell them thank you? So that's kind of my exercise that keeps me connected to divine and a higher self. Do you have these practices mentally or do you write or? In some other format. I wish I could tell you that I was disciplined enough to write every day, Nishant, in a journal. And I have so many beautiful journals that people send me or that I buy. And I'll write down things when I need to, especially at night, like a brain dump or a to-do list. But I think for me, they're mentally that I, I just, you know, stay in a state of flow. And uh, we have talked about a stress many a times in this recording. I want to ask you about your relationship with the stress now. How do you handle or manage your stress? 
Yeah. You know, we were having this honest conversation where I thought I had mastered stress management and I was one of the go-to authorities for corporate America for speaking engagements or consultation on stress management. And I used to teach mindfulness and then the pandemic happened and I had to, like many entrepreneurs, change our entire business model and service line and almost rescale a business and rebuild a business. And I will tell you, Nishant, it was honestly very stressful. I had moments that I too was like, wow, I'm taking my own busy brain test and it's not normal. So first of all, I really want to have that authentic moment and say life happens to all of us, especially right now in the middle of a pandemic. And I have my stressful moments. So the one thing I do is I honor my rituals above all else. I told you the sleep, the getting up in the morning, the praying and the meditating. I think that has kept me sane. And the next one is human connection. And I think more than anything in this last year, we've learned about the human connection and the power of it. And it was having my quarantine bubble and the people that were there. And that has probably the two things that has helped me the most. And I think the hardest thing is a strong woman where I am the person, Nishant, where hundreds of people from previous companies were contacting me one in comfort, or I was the person helping elderly parents or, you know, friends and family. Sometimes when you're the strong person, you forget to ask for help or communication and connection. And so I remember reaching out to women in my life saying, hey, could we call and talk once a while or walk outside if they were local here where I live in Florida, because I needed that connection. Is it challenging for you to ask for help? I'm learning, right? So it's, it is. And I say this because we, we do sometimes those of us that are leaders and we're used to of helping everybody and leading teams, we realize we have to pause and get help as well. So I am learning to do better. And I think that has what's gotten me through the stress of this last year is and honestly, of everything that we researched in the brain shift protocol, we haven't had a chance to talk about that. But I knew very quickly for myself, Nishant, and for all my clients, the people that were calling in corporate America saying, look, our usual stress management techniques are not working. And the last thing we need is somebody coming in and telling us to eat berries and breathe. And that sent me back looking into my research on the busy brain. The busy brain is this, is when you're stressed, there's a specific pattern of inflammation that happens in success-driven professionals where they have a low-level anxiety and difficulty focusing all day, and they're wired and tired, and yet they can't fall asleep. And like I told you, they're that's me. Yeah. I've been I've been feeling this for last okay. two days, honestly. Well, okay. So that there is a reason you and I were meant to talk. And then what happens? We self-medicate with energy drinks or caffeine during the day. And some people self-medicate with the prescription sleeping pill or alcohol at night, right? Wine or bourbon. And, and you keep going in the cycle. And that's a busy brain. And there's a way out of it that when you end this chemical dependency, you can use that busy brain to your advantage. And I then you're in your mind maverick state. I say it because it's us mind mavericks that are the thought leaders and the doers and the action takers that are going to lead our individual industries out of this. And so the brain shift protocol covers that where we get to the five root causes of why you have a busy brain and what to do about it. And that is what I had to retool. There's simple micro habits that, you know, in the entire scientific protocol, we take individuals or teams through it in eight week increments, and they get to see what it's like to be in that state of flow that you and I were just talking about, or that grace where no matter what drama, trauma and stress is happening around you, you just kind of rise above it. And you're productive and you stay focused. And you don't you're not worried about your job. And you're not irritable yelling at your family. Could you elaborate more on brain shift protocol and how how we can manage our own stress and get to the root cause? Yeah, yeah, thank you. So we call it the busy brain. So we have, as I mentioned, a free test on my website, the busy brain test. You can go and we'll give you a link for your show notes as well that you get a score. I'm a firm believer of assess, don't guess your stress levels, Nishant, right? Because people are like, who's stressed? Everybody's stressed. Well, we have a clinical neuropsychology test that walks you through exactly how stressed you are and what your symptoms are and you get a number and from that we give you the first seven days of the brain shift protocol free on my website which is the 330 method of learning to train your brain to take three minutes during the day for a sensory reset and the 30 minutes at night and the rituals you do to calm the busy brain so that's 
all there and we we talk about that but the brain shift protocol gets to the root causes of inflammatory markers hormones and what foods may be disturbing you and causing a busy brain and that's in our larger protocol we've been delivering it to corporate clients this year and we will this summer be launching it for the public we're very excited we that has been what I've been working hard on at home now that I'm not traveling for speaking and doing virtually speaking, we built out a technology platform. I'm really excited. Yeah. Yeah. You have worked with Grammy award-winning musicians, mm-hmm. top NBA NFL athletes mm-hmm. and 500 company executives. So when you work with these high performers, what do you tell them or ask them? How do you work with them? Yeah. Well, you know, I will say they they normally come to me from self-referral and integrative medicine and, you know, or they see my work on TV or, you know, heard me speak at a large conference in the days we were traveling, right? And so that's how they would, you know, the brain shift protocol is at scale what I would walk these individual athletes and executives to. There's a whole person 360 evaluation that, you know, you take at the beginning And then, you know, you get labs from your primary care provider, and then we tool a program. So when I'm working with, you know, high performing individuals, they get to walk with it through it one on one with me personally. So the first step is to take your busy brain test. Yeah, assess, don't guess your stress scores, right? You may be doing better than you actually think. And right now, You may be stressed because you just got some bad news or you're worried about something, but overall your stress scores may be better or other people may be in denial. They're like, I'm fine. Who isn't stressed? And they take the test and they realize that they're at brain strain with risk of burnout. You know, I will, I will speak for myself and this is an interview format, but I want to speak for myself. It might relate with others. For me, I I might feel stressed when there is a tight deadline and if I'm not sure how to handle that or if i don't have a skill set to perform that task to deliver in a timely manner if there is a good timeline i can manage that but i I manage it i meditate i have these practices in build and when the and there is a thought loop and that drains my emotional energy mm-hmm. after that it impacts my sleep mm-hmm. yes thank you for sharing that that is the epitome of having a busy brain nishant right you are a highly intellectual success driven professional so that is the epitome of it but it's like when you're in the busy brain state and inflammation is there there can be this perfectionism procrastination this pressure that you're worried more about the time than getting the actual tasks done And that's what happens when our brain is hijacked in the busy brain state. But when you can brain shift, you learn that your busy brain is actually a superpower and that in your best self, you and I, we get more done in one day than the average worker does in two weeks. And that it is normal. This is normal to have these kind of issues. Yeah. Forget all that nonsense where people are like, empty your thoughts. You're bad if you have 100,000 thoughts. No, some of us process a lot of data. And when our busy brains are working in our favor, we perform. And I I use this example for me, Nishant, and maybe you can give an example for your job. When I was seeing patients or when I see these executive coaching clients, I'm often, you know, looking at a complex of their life history. I'm looking at hundreds of pages of medical records or laboratory evaluation, and I'm looking at thousands of pieces of data points and my brain can quickly analyze it. That's when you know your busy brain is working and it's on and you're at peak performance. But when my busy brain is hijacked by stress and my and, and, you know, I, I'm not performing now. I'm struggling to even focus on one task. And there's multiple modalities of communication that are dinging and pinging and distracting. And you're like, how am I ever going to get this done on time? And then you end up procrastinating or being a perfectionist, right? Yes. That's exactly what's happening. And so how do you get out of that, right? Is, you know, I ask you to start with that 330 method. But if it's something that's happening routinely, there means there's something going on and brain shift, S is sleep, H is hormones, I are inflammatory markers, F is the food and fuel you're using, and T is technology. And that's all the root causes of the busy brain and inflammation. So in that program, we dig deep as to what's going on with you personally, so I can fix it and not 
two people are alike. For some people, it's their thyroid. For other people, it's vitamin D levels. For other people, it's a specific food they're eating. So we figure it all out on an individual level. So going back to your earlier question, when executives or athletes are working with me one-on-one, I you know, I'm biohacking every individual segment for them. But now we have the brain shift course where we can take groups of people through it with our technology platform. They still get me live and going through it all. But then, you know, th- there's technology power in the background with our algorithms to tell them what's the next step to do. Practicing one protocol or principle from Dr. Gabor Mate. You must be familiar with Gabor Mate. No, no, tell me. Gabor Mate, he's the world-renowned physician and trauma addiction expert. So he talks about whenever there is any, I'm going to paraphrase, whenever there is any disturbance in your mind, body, or soul, you ask yourself, what happened to you? Or what happened inside of you? This is the first question to ask. Mm -hmm. And then the second question is, you ask yourself, what is my emotional reaction to this what i'm feeling i personally feel helpless when i'm stressed mm-hmm. what i'm feeling what is the feeling behind it are you frustrated are you sad are you angry what what is the emotional reaction what is your emotional feeling mm-hmm. and the third thing is what is my interpretation what is my perception what is my opinion because we all have our own interpretation of the external events you know, I, I think that's a great mindfulness-based cognitive therapy exercise as well to process emotions. And I think that's great. And I agree with that. And if it works for you, wonderful. I think for my people that have busy brain, they are so frazzled and wired and tired that they can't even stop to recognize that they need to process their emotions. and get That's a bigger problem. Right? <laughs> that's, that's the people I work with, Nishan. People who are not even aware, they just have a task and they feel like their schedule is controlling them rather than their schedule controlling them, right? So that's where I come in. And your exercise is beautiful, right? It's one powerful one based in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and, and such a great therapy tool. And that's something I would do once I get people's brain cells to stop being on fire. Like I, I see them at the beginning part, right? So I, I think I, I work in a different realm. You know, you're very self-aware. I, you know, (laughs) experts you get to interview and I'm honored to be one of them. So you, I know you learn from each and every one of them, but you know, I, I work with a different person. They're, they're the type A success driven, unapologetic professionals. And it's like, don't tell me to slow down or I'm going to run over you with my designer shoes and my wearable tech. I have been there. I used to be one of them. Okay, yeah. And so that's who I'm working with. And, you know, those executives, those athletes, those, you know, celebrities and performers or doctors or lawyers, you know, they they felt like, you know, the mortal enemy is their schedule and their schedule is controlling them. Like I said earlier, they need to get back in control. And uh, that's where I step in, you know. You, re- you remind me of one saying from Dr. Brené Brown, you have to create white space in your calendar. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Romy, you are the here's chief. The, here's the thing, Nishant, if I tell people to create white space in their calendar, they're not going to work with me. I mean, these are the people that are the executives that are leading multinational companies out of the pandemic, right? So so there's something that's a little deeper. Getting white space in your calendar is a goal. Getting to a place where you can process your emotions are a goal. I look at the actual brain chemistry and root cause of what's going on so we can fix it and then get you to that place where you learn the skills to put white space on your calendar and uh, and process your emotions, right? So like I said, I'm at that, you know, place. So go ahead, I, I cut you off. You can, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. You are taking people at the baseline level first. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you are the chief wellness officer at yes. Evolution Hospitality. You implemented a mindfulness program called the Power of Pause, mm-hmm. which is based in neuroscience, psychology, and mindfulness. So what is that? Can you speak to that for the next two minutes? Yeah, what an honor, you know. Had somebody told me when I graduated from medical school that one day you'll get to be a chief wellness officer of a company where they practice servant and mindful leadership, I don't know that I would have comprehended it. I am honored that, you know, I'm one of the first physicians in the country in such a role in corporate America. And my job was to number one, assess how could we help all of our employees from the C-suite to the front line to our housekeepers and front desk staff 
be a better version of themselves with wellness and wellness is embedded in the culture. And when I looked at, this is a operations that go 24, seven, 365 days of the year, I started with stress management and we started with mindfulness when I, after I did the company assessment of what was needed and could benefit the most people. And we call the program power of pause and it teaches people one to take mindful moments during the day and we have trained uh, over 80 evo mindful guides that are mini meditation teachers all throughout the organization that lead their teams in the workday or before the start of every shift in a mindful moment and then you know we practice digital detox and meditation at night and our 21 day digital detox challenges. So that's what the power of pause is. And the results were outstanding when we looked at it, the first cohort that we took through this group, without any changes in medication, food, diet, sleep, anything, we saw over 60% improvement in individual scores on average on reduction in anxiety and improvement in sleep, they did better doing these behavioral techniques than had I given them a prescription of Xanax. It wasn't just a wellness program that we created. It was a cultural movement because it wasn't about me as the chief wellness officer. It was about we, the entire organization. And before the pandemic, when we measured, we had over 70% adaptation rate of our mindfulness program. Remember, our teams are not just in corporate headquarters in California, but in hotels all over the United States and Canada. When you look at other companies that have hired someone to implement an app for mindfulness, they have less than 5 to 10% uptake. So people are hiring us going, how did you create this cultural movement at Evolution Hospitality? We want something like that. And I feel so thankful. I think it was because of the support of the leadership. You know, all the C-suite got involved, no matter how busy they were, they adapted it, they took it out in the field. And it was something fun. And most of all, mindfulness works. It became this team building exercise that made every individual in the company feel seen and heard and that they belong to the organization. Thank you for your service, Rumi. I'm looking at my notes right now. I have so many notes currently. And Mm -hmm. uh, I want to ask you about whenever you see someone successful, who comes to your mind? I think of the people that are successful that I know, Nishant, that are in my mind. They're probably yes. names you and I don't know. They are. They don't have the blue check mark on Twitter or Instagram. They don't have a social media following or influencer. The people that I know that are successful are individuals that have come to me and they were brave enough to say, okay, something's going on in my brain. I don't know if this is ADHD, anxiety, something that's going on. And they have the courage to do something about their brain and mental health. And they go back in with joy and a sense of purpose to their job. They're the everyday teacher, principal, executive, the people whose names you and I will never know. They're just another name on LinkedIn or, you know, someone collecting a paycheck, but they go and then they have a chance to impact the team they lead and make everyone that works around them feel happier and healthier as well, or the students in their classroom or their patients. So. Those are the people that I see that are successful. They took a pause and realized, ooh, I need to work on my brain and mental health. And I'm going to do this so that I can make the people I work with feel better. Those are the successful people that I feel honored to serve every day, Nishan. That's pretty awesome. Very awesome. And uh, yeah, it has been a very insightful and fun conversation with you, Romy. Is there anything you want to explore? more in our conversation. No, I'm just going to end with this is to tell everyone to have compassion for yourself. It's been a hard 12 to 18 months for the entire world. And if you find yourself in a busy brain, you're not alone. 80% of the people on our busy brain test are in brain strain or near burnout. And I don't want you to suffer alone or just wear stress as a badge of honor. Know that there's help. Your company may have an employee assistance program. We have a lot of free resources on my website. You know, whatever that is, is just to know that you're not alone and that when you calm your busy brain, you can stand in your brain power. And it's going to take a lot of us standing in our brain power to rebuild the systems that are broken in our world right now and that the pandemic has highlighted. 
Where would you like our listeners to find you online? Yeah, I'm at Dr. Romy on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. And if you go to my website or any of those social media links, you will find a link to take the busy brain test. I will put these links in the show notes at nishangag.me slash podcast. And uh, I'm going to take this test for myself. Reach out to me when you're done, Nishant, and I'm happy to be of service and help you one-to-one. It's been such an honor. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story with you and your listeners and to be of service. And, you know, like I said, you and I talked about our intentions at the beginning of this podcast. My podcast was my intuition was telling me to do this podcast because even if one person listening is struggling with their brain and mental health, they're going to realize like, oh, what Nishant and Romy talked about themselves and her clients, that's me and there's help. And that's my intention. So thank you. Thank you so much, Romy. Your name reminds me of Rumi Jalaluddin. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g.me you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again. Okay.